Hey, some exciting news and just a quick note before we begin. We were nominated for a podcast award. If you're enjoying the podcast, I would appreciate it if you vote for us on the 14th annual People's Choice Podcast Awards. To vote for us, visit podcastawards.com and click the blue button that says Nominations Now Open. You'll need to create a quick account, but once in, select History of the Marine Corps from the drop-down on two locations. The first is the Adam Curie People's Choice Award, and the second drop-down is in the Society and Culture. Once those two are selected, hit Save Nominations, and that's it. We really appreciate your help. Now on to the show. Welcome to Episode 18 of History of the Marine Corps, The British Capture of Philadelphia, Part 1. Last week, the Marines left General Washington and resumed their post on board naval vessels. We discussed Lieutenant John Trevitt, a relatively unheard of Marine who was involved with multiple engagements during the American Revolution. We also discussed the first American ship to lower their colors and surrender to the British. This week, the British advance on Philadelphia, and General Washington could do little to stop them. We also discuss a media story going viral in the 18th century about a Marine lieutenant who threw a party on board the Delaware. Thanks for joining, and now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. A common theme throughout this series is the difficulty the Continental Forces had with recruiting men for service. Many men would either desert their post or become a privateer to make more money and live a better life as a soldier. As an attempt to minimize this issue, the Second Continental Congress passed the 88 Battalion Resolve on September 16, 1776, which required each state to give men based on the size of their population. The name is self-explanatory, but the resolve authorized 88 new battalions for George Washington and his Continental Army. The quota for infantry battalions was fixed at 15 each from Massachusetts and Virginia, 12 from Pennsylvania, 9 from North Carolina, 8 from Connecticut and Maryland, 6 from South Carolina, 4 from New York and New Jersey, 3 from New Hampshire, 2 from Rhode Island, and 1 each from Delaware and Georgia. I have a chart on historyofthemarinecorps.com that shows each state, population, and quota requirements. Congress also increased the enlistment terms from one year to three years. Americans were adamantly against long enlistment terms during the first year and a half of the war, but the opposition started to change during the summer of 1776. A one-year contract was hardly enough time to develop a well-trained, disciplined army. John Adams acknowledged that America needed a regular army, because without it, we cannot reasonably hope to be a powerful, a prosperous, or a free people. Come summer, new units were raised, and recruited men signed up for three years of service. In February 1777, Congress, via Robert Morris, appointed John Paul Jones to command the Alfred, Columbus, the Cabot, Hampton, and the Providence for a bold mission. The task was aggressive and contained multiple phases, but success would provide valuable resources for the United States. The first step was to capture the island of St. Kitts. This island belonged to Britain and contained a lot of resources. It was an attractive first step, 
a win would provide much-needed resources for America, large bounties for the Marines and sailors who participated, and a boost in morale for the crews on board each ship. Once St. Kitts was secured, the second step would have the fleet advance towards Pensacola and take out British ships harassing the area. When the British were wiped out in Pensacola, the fleet would sail west towards the mouth of the Mississippi River and seize British riverboats, head back to Florida, and cruise along St. Augustine, Georgia, and the Carolinas, displaying America's colors and letting the British know of our presence. And finally, the fleet would head towards the West African coast and attack the British slave boats headed towards the West Indies. The purpose of this elaborate plan was to harass the British and take out important resources the British depended on for revenue and supplies. Robert Morris commented, It has long been clear to me that our infant fleet cannot protect our own coast, and the only effectual relief it can afford us is to attack the enemy's defenseless places and thereby oblige them to station more of their ships in their own countries, or to keep them employed in following ours, and either way we are relieved so far as they do it. This seemed like a reasonable plan, right? If American forces cannot match the British head-on, a good strategy would be to split up their military and force the British to attack with smaller, more manageable forces. To help with the success of this mission, Robert Morris proposed that John Paul Jones bring as many Marines as possible with him. There would be multiple opportunities for amphibious landings, and Marines would be a valuable resource for land warfare. Marines have already been proving their value on board ships as well, and having sharpshooters and raiding parties composed of Marines would help drastically with capturing British vessels at sea. John Paul Jones started to plan for this mission, incorporating Marines whenever possible. Unfortunately for Robert Morris, John Paul Jones, and the Marines, this mission would never start. Commodore Esek Hopkins had doubts about the success of this mission, and contested moving forward with the plan. Naturally, Jones was upset about this decision, and he would experience similar fates during his next two assignments. In March, Jones was assigned to command one of the new frigates built in Massachusetts, but that was cancelled shortly after he received his orders. And again in May, where he was given a ship to command, but the captain of the ship refused to turn over his command to Jones. The following month, luck would change for Jones, and he would be given the command of the Ranger, an 18-gun ship. The original blueprint for the Ranger doesn't exist, but her measurements were captured in other documentation. The Ranger's deck was 97 feet 2 inches, the keel was 77 feet 9 inches, and its width was 27 feet 8 inches. The Ranger's sides were black with a yellow stripe, and it had three fully rigged masts. In a conversation between John Paul Jones and Marine Captain Matthew Park, Jones stated that the Ranger would prove to be the best cruiser in America. Samuel Wallingford was appointed as a lieutenant of Marines on board the Ranger. He didn't have any sea service experience, or training for that matter. However, Wallingford had broad experience leading the New Hampshire militia as a lieutenant and a captain. Captain Matthew Park was appointed as the captain of Marines. After the officers were selected, the next step was finding a crew to staff the ship. Jones ordered Marine Captain Matthew Park and Marine Captain Edward Aerosmith to enlist sailors and Marines for service on board the Ranger. Park and Aerosmith would recruit 21 men for service, but soon after these men were recruited, they were transferred to Captain John B. Hopkins' ship, the Warren, for service. The competition of manning multiple ships at once was a challenge for Jones, 
So to compensate, he provided posters and authorized the use of drums, fifes, and displaying the national colors to get more men to sign up for service on board the Ranger. He also authorized reimbursement for reasonable travel expenses, as well as a bounty of $40 for every man who appeared at the ship. Lieutenant Wallingford took the resources provided by Jones and started recruiting again. Most of Wallingford's time was spent recruiting in his hometown of Summersworth. This made finding men a little easier, and he was able to focus on locals he knew from growing up in the area. In July 1777, the number of recruits were still not adequate, and Jones sent Park to Boston to recruit more men. The reimbursement and bounties attracted a lot of recruits, but Marines Park and Wallingford would still have difficulty meeting their quotas. Even with the additional benefits, men would often sign up for service, receive their initial bounty, and leave shortly after. Jones was desperate and petitioned for the New Hampshire Committee of Safety to take soldiers from the local forts and have them serve on board the Ranger. He wrote multiple letters to the committee and to John Langdon expressing his disappointment and evoking his mission from Congress to staff the Ranger, but all letters would be ignored. Despite the desertion of many of his crew and lack of support from the New Hampshire Committee of Safety, Jones was able to secure 150 sailors and Marines for service on board the Ranger. The ship was rigged, Marines were armed, and on November 1st, the Ranger finally set sail for France. It took 32 days for the Ranger to reach her destination, but she arrived at Painbouf on the Loire River in December. Once there, Jones modified the Ranger by increasing her sail, strengthening her hull, and modified the outside to look like a British merchant ship. On board the rally, Captain George Jerry Osborne was having a difficult time recruiting Marines at Portsmouth. This was holding up the rally from sailing to sea, so Osborne recruited 11 men directly from the Continental Army. The men were recruited out of Colonel Pierce Long's regiment, and he was not happy about Osborne recruiting his men. Long and his soldiers received orders to head towards Fort Ticonderoga, and he needed all the support he could get for this trek. Long contacted the New Hampshire Committee of Safety and demanded that his men be returned to him. The committee agreed with Long and dispatched a message to Osborne requiring him to return Long's 11 soldiers back to his regiment. The 88th Battalion Resolve authorized the Army to recruit from other regiments. However, the Marines were not part of this resolve, and recruiting from existing units was not allowed. The captain of the rally, Thomas Thompson, received this message and gave it to Osborne, but he responded to the committee with, The men have entered as Marines, not Mariners, and Marines by a vote of Congress are on the same footing as soldiers in the land service. Notwithstanding, we can keep them and are not accountable to the Committee of Safety of any state for such conduct. Yet rather than any reflection should fall on us, or that we should be the means of retarding the too-long-neglected march of Colonel Long shall agree to give them up, if he desires it. Osborne sent a similar letter to the committee, and he stated, I think, gentlemen, if my company is to be ruled and commanded by the regulation of the army, I must, in consequence, reckon my department as part of the same. Osborne also stated that he received orders from Samuel Nicholas to fill his company equal to the land service. This statement is important. It's assumed that Samuel Nicholas had no control over marine companies outside of the four frigates in Philadelphia. However, 
This statement is the first and only known occurrence of Samuel Nicholas directly commanding units outside of Philadelphia. The replies from both Osborne and Thompson did nothing to change the mind of the committee. Osborne sent Long's men back, but the Marines still had the problem of staffing the rally. She and her crew would remain in port for several more months. In August, the Alfred would pull into port with the rally and wait there until the end of the month when they would finally recruit enough men to adequately staff the vessel. They would head out to sea together and sail for France. While the two ships were on their voyage, they came across a small schooner that was headed towards Halifax. The schooner was captured along with 20 barrels of flour and over $4,000 in counterfeit money. Thompson saved some of the money to take back to authorities, but ended up burning most of it. They also burnt and destroyed the newly captured schooner. They encountered another ship on September 2nd and captured it as well. The passengers on board the ship were quick to give out information and brief the Americans on their separation from the Windward Island fleet, which included four British vessels. Thompson made a copy of the sailing orders and signal book and sent the ship off to the nearest port. Thompson sailed towards the British, and by the next morning he was able to see the enemy. He informed the captain of the Alfred, Elijah Hinman, that he planned to advance and attack the enemy at sunrise. The original plan was for the Alfred to stay close to the rally's rear until they were alongside the enemy. At that point, they would both attack. As with most battle strategies, the first plan inevitably fails, and it was no different for Thompson and Hinman. At night, the wind shifted and the two American ships ended up 7 to 10 miles further away from the British. The rally was able to catch up to the British, but the Alfred couldn't keep up and it was left behind. Thompson decided that he would ditch the original plan and attack without the Alfred's support. Using the signal book from the previously captured ship, the rally advanced forward with her gun ports closed. When the rally was within 50 yards of the Druid, Thompson opened the gun ports, hoisted the Continental colors, and shouted, Strike to the 13 United States! The Druid had no idea what was going on, and was completely confused by the whole ordeal. The rally unleashed her first set of volleys. Marines were positioned throughout the tops of the ship, providing constant firing from their muskets. The rally was able to release about 12 more shots from her cannons. The other British ships started to head towards the Druid. When Thompson saw the approaching enemy, he ceased the attack and headed towards the Alfred. Three of the British ships quickly gave chase, but were forced to give up due to night approaching. For the next three days, the Americans chased the British ships, but the enemy did not attack. The Americans stopped pursuing the British and continued with their original mission to France. A third shipping crew would be ordered to France as well, and Captain Nicholas Biddle and the Randolph set sail in February 1777 in what he described as one of the most disagreeable passages that he ever experienced. On her way to France, the Randolph ran into a French ship. They boarded the vessel and reviewed her paperwork. Everything on board seemed to be copacetic, and the Randolph was about to let her go, but Marine Lieutenant Panettier de la Falconiere begged the captain for a large jug of wine. This was an unprofessional move by the Marine, and many on board the Randolph petitioned to have him removed from the ship. But this petition would be put on hold. In March, 
Intense wind would cause a split mass on the Randolph, and she was forced to head to Charleston for repairs. On her way to South Carolina, the British crew on board the ship would mutiny, and Marines would assemble to control the situation. The ship pulled into Charleston in the middle of March, where sick crew would receive medical attention and any damages would be fixed. The Randolph would be ready in June, but in a stroke of bad luck, lightning would strike the main mast and shatter it to pieces. Obviously, this would delay the Randolph's departure, and she would stay in port until the end of July. With her main mast fixed for a second time, the crew of the Randolph set sail again. But their bad luck had not run out. On their way to sea, the Randolph was struck by another lightning bolt, and her main mast was damaged again. While the mast was being repaired for a third time, Captain Biddle thought this was a good opportunity to address the petition against Marine Lieutenant Falconier. The other officers on board the Randolph had enough of the lieutenant, and they wanted him off the ship. A formal complaint was filed with Captain Biddle in August, and Falconier was accused of unbecoming of an officer and a disgrace to the Randolph. The formal complaint contained multiple examples and evidence supporting their accusations. Some of these examples include When on shore, he always associates with the worst of vagabonds and those houses no gentleman ever go to. He stabbed a soldier. He is the most obscene talker and greatest reprobate and blasphemer we have ever heard. He has been heard to damn the Trinity in the most shocking expression, and he frequently declared that if any man disrespected him, he would assassinate him. The evidence and witnesses were overwhelming, and Captain Biddle had no other option but to agree with his officers. He wrote a letter to the Marine Committee on August 31st, echoing the complaints of his officers and stating that Falconier is exceeding troublesome and has behaved in so many instances unworthy the character of an officer. The next day, Falconier would be discharged from the Randolph. He was ordered to report to the Marine Committee, and the remaining crew would head out to sea. It is not known whether or not Falconier would ever report to the Marine Committee, but Captain Biddle and his crew were glad that the mess was handled before they headed towards their next mission. They made their way to St. Augustine to look for enemy merchantmen. It didn't take long, and on the night of September 3rd, the Randolph spotted numerous ships just over the horizon. They followed the ships throughout the night, and in the morning they identified two merchant vessels, two brigs, and a sloop. The British ship spotted the Randolph, and one of the ships, the HMS True Britain, fired at her. The enemy fleet was much too far away for that shot to be effective, so the Randolph didn't retaliate. They continued to follow the enemy as the British tried to flee. The Randolph continued to gain on the True Britain. As she came within 50 yards of the enemy, Captain Biddle ordered a single gun to fire. That was enough for the British to surrender, and they lowered their colors to the Americans. The Randolph chased the remaining vessels and was able to capture three other ships from the British convoy. Captain Biddle and his crew had a successful mission and he decided to head towards South Carolina to drop off the bounty. When the Randolph pulled into port, they were welcomed with cheers and kudos from the residents in Charleston. Captain Biddle and his crew did great, but he would not enjoy this welcome for long. It turned out the Randolph had severe rot that needed repair. He would also learn that on September 26, the British would capture Philadelphia following the defeat of General Washington during the Battle of Brandywine and the Battle of the Clouds. Back in May, while the Randolph was in port 
and just before her first lightning strike, General Washington was the only thing standing in between the British Army and the city of Philadelphia. There wasn't much activity going on at this time, and Washington was uneasy about idly waiting for something to happen. He received intelligence that around a hundred enemy ships were leaving New York and headed in their direction. Washington sent a letter to Patrick Henry, speculating that the ships were heading to their location to either take possession of the Hudson River or attack Philadelphia via the Delaware River. The enemy fleet would not sail until the end of July, but they were on their way and they were coming in force. Out of the four original company of Marines, only two were present in Philadelphia at the time. Captain Robert Mullen's company were currently residing in the barracks on 2nd Street, while Marines under Captain Benjamin Dean, who were temporarily serving as artillerymen, came back to Philadelphia, awaiting their post on the Washington. On April 5th, Captain Mullen and his men boarded the Delaware, and three days later, the Marine Committee issued orders to the Delaware to sail for enemy transport ships sailing between Europe and New York to practice attacking enemy vessels. They were to engage with any British ships that weren't ships of war until they felt they were strong enough to take on enemy warships. Once they reached that point, they would head back to North America and cruise along the coast from Block Island to the Capes of Virginia, taking or destroying as many ships as they could. Despite being short-staffed, the Delaware headed for her mission on April 9th. The Marines and Navy were learning their lesson when it came to recruits and their quickness to desert. To minimize the amount of men jumping ship, no pun intended, the Delaware anchored off Fort Island so men couldn't just leave. As we've covered throughout the series, there are no shortages of hurry up and wait examples, and this would be an example of another one. The Delaware would remain in port until the summer, and as bored Marines tend to do, they started to get into trouble. On June 25th, 2nd Lieutenant Alexander Nielsen decided to throw a party on the Delaware, and he invited multiple guests. Apparently, he forgot to bring the drinks, and Nielsen decided to break into and share Lieutenant Daniel Henderson's stash with his guests. When Lieutenant Henderson returned and found his liquor gone, he charged Nielsen with theft and called for a court-martial. Henderson got his request, and a court-martial was held for Lieutenant Nielsen charging him with theft. Nielsen was found innocent, but required to pay back Henderson for the missing alcohol. Henderson was not happy with the results, but Nielsen reimbursed him and the issue seemed to have been dropped. This incident received a lot of attention. It even made the local papers. While the Delaware was going through her problems, the Washington was facing issues as well. Captain Dean experienced the same desertion challenges, and he was having a hard time keeping the ship properly manned. It was another hurry-up-and-wait scenario, and Marines on board the Washington would become impatient and just leave. Captain Dean wouldn't appreciate the idleness, and he resigned his command due to the dormancy of the ship. He passed control of the Marines to his lieutenant, Abel Morgan. On July 23rd, the British Army set sail with 15 to 18,000 men and over 260 warships. The British fleet was spotted by the lookout for the Pennsylvania Committee of Safety, Henry Fisher, about a week later at Lewis, Delaware. Without hesitation, Fisher sent messengers to Philadelphia informing them of the incoming enemy. After the message was received in Philadelphia, 
Washington would be notified next, and he responded by sending his men back to Philadelphia to help guard the city. For the next two weeks, the city of Philadelphia waited for the arrival of the British fleet. The enemy would come in and out of view during the voyage, and American leaders would attempt to predict the fleet's destination. After the two weeks, British forces would arrive at the head of Elk in Upper Chesapeake Bay. Everyone in Philadelphia was terrified. Citizens were leaving their houses and moving to the country, and the local government was developing a strategy to protect the city from an attack by naval ships. The Delaware, along with multiple other ships, were sent to support the Andrew Doria and the Fly, who were waiting down the river. During the following few days, Americans would spot an enemy ship, give chase, and the enemy would withdraw. Commander-in-Chief of the British forces, General Howe, would land his army near Head of Elk on August 25th, and General Washington and his men would engage the British on September 11th at Brandywine. The battle would begin with a heavy fog that provided cover for the advancing British forces. The fog caused some confusion, and Washington's scouts provided inconsistencies with their intelligence reports. Washington thought the British's main force was headed straight for him at Chad's Ford, but it turned out to be the Hessians, commanded by Wilhelm von Niefhausen. The battle between the Americans and the Hessians lasted for hours. Washington would realize he was outmaneuvered when the British appeared at his right flank. Come nightfall, the Americans were defeated and retreated to Chester. American soldiers would trickle in until dawn, while General Howe and his men camped on the battlefield and prepared to march on Philadelphia. Washington would spend the next few weeks moving from Chad's Ford to Philadelphia. General Cornwallis and his 3,000 men would follow Washington. On September 26, Cornwallis would attack and capture the capital by 10 in the morning. A few days before Cornwallis captured Philadelphia, the commander of the city, Louis Nicola, moved all ships anchored in the city throughout the river. British artillery batteries were constructed along the banks of the Delaware River to prevent the Americans from bombarding the newly captured city. The batteries composed of four medium 12-pounders and two 5.5-inch howitzers. The Marine Committee understood the value of the Delaware River and in a letter to the American fleet stated that if the Americans controlled the Delaware, the British Army would collapse. The Continental Fleet gathered to discuss a plan of attack for the newly built defenses on the river. Next week, the Marines will be sent in to help. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as the Marines and Navy come up with a plan to take back the Delaware and Philadelphia. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.